Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as part of the Silence and Solitude practice. We are coming off a three-month-long vision series on Practicing the Way of Jesus, and now we're finally ready to start our first practice. Yes, absolutely. How do you feel about that? Yeah. And the reason for the time lag, if you're type A and kind of in a rush like me, um, was we really wanted, as a church, we really wanted to get the why behind the idea of a practice-based approach to community and to apprenticeship to Jesus. So if you missed the fall series or if you were in and out of town and missed a few of the teachings, please go back and listen to the podcast just to make sure that we're all on the same page as a church. That said, before we jump into our first practice of silence and solitude, recommended reading is this book, Invitation to Silence and Solitude by Ruth Haley. Barton. It is a short, easy, but fantastic read. If you're a reader and you want extra credit or something with God, I don't think that's a thing, but value added, this is a great place to start. And then on practice in general, or what are usually called the spiritual disciplines in general, our two favorite reads are The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. We just hack this book all the time. And then Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, which I think was first I think it first turned up in 1978, and it is still the go-to text. Spirit of the Disciplines is more on the why behind the spiritual disciplines. And then um, Celebration of Discipline is more a how-to manual for a number of the most important practices of Jesus. So all of that is available for you out at the book table out there or on our website, okay? Yep. All right. Well, Matthew, um, we'll get there in just a minute. I come from a reading family, and so every year, my sister, Rebecca, who is down in LA, she's an avid reader as well, we have a little bit of a competition to see who can read the most books. I win, and um, no, actually, usually she does, but I, I won this year, 125 for last year, which was, I feel good about that. So, and then every Christmas, most of the time, we gift each other a few of our favorite reads, and it's like a new, weird kind of Comer tradition. And one book that I gave her a few weeks ago for the holiday was this book, Tribe, by Sebastian Junger, which, Alex, you turned me on to, I think, in the fall. And the book opens with this fascinating phenomenon from early American history. We have all sorts of examples of white, English, educated colonists come to, quote, civilize, end quote, the new world, leaving the city to join the indigenous peoples out in the forest of the East Coast. We even have examples of women and children who were captured by the indigenous peoples because of violence and warfare, all of that, and then later rescued, but of their own free will and volition went back to live with the indigenous peoples. In 1753, Benjamin Franklin, the one and only, said this, though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. But here's the thing, we don't have one example of indigenous peoples leaving the tribe to come live in the city, not one. In 1782, Hector de Crevecaire, a French emigre, said this, and forgive the archaic language, I know it's not appropriate anymore, but in context. He said this, thousands of Europeans are Indians, 
and we have no examples of even one of those Aborigines having from choice become European. So here you have one group of people living how we did in the Stone Age, and another living at the, quote, peak of civilization, but the traffic between the two people groups only goes one way. And Junger just makes the point that there is something about modern society that is toxic. For all our science and medicine and technology and education and government, all of which is fantastic, modern society still does something to the soul. And I would argue this is more true now than ever before as we're living at this key inflection point in the human story. When the history books are written, they will point to 2007 as just as important of a year as 1440. 1440, if you remember from high school, was the year Gutenberg invented the printing press, which launched the Protestant Reformation, which transformed Europe and out of that the world. 2007 was the year what? I've, exactly, you all said it right there, that Steve Jobs unleashed the iPhone out into the wild. It was also, you might not realize this, the year that Facebook became open to anybody with an email address and went from a college or high school campus thing to a global phenomenon. It was the year that a microblogging site called Twitter became its own platform and also went global, and a list of a whole list of a number of other technological breakthroughs from the App Store to the cloud to Intel shift to a Silicon chip right here in town, all right around the year 2000 the official start date of the digital age. The world has radically changed in the last decade. If you're 20 or so, it's all you've ever known. But if you're just a little north of that, 23, 24, 25, you remember a time when infinity wasn't in your back pocket. You remember standing in line or sitting on a plane or looking out a window on a train with nothing to do. You remember that? There was this thing in the late 90s that we used to call boredom. A lot of you are way too young to even know that was a thing. It was a thing. I grew up with it. Remember there was a day when a snow day was actually, you were off work, you were off school, like Wi-Fi is great until it starts to snow, and then you have to actually have a job still and all of that. Now we can't imagine living with something that didn't even exist a decade ago. And there are all, I'm not a Luddite, there are all sorts of pros to the digital age. Uber, how great is that? I mean, it's a terrible company, but it's a great idea. And I, I, um, I Uber home every Sunday night because I don't like to ride my bike in the freezing cold of winter and the dark. Maps is fantastic. My little brother is in London right now. We're texting all day today. Hey, go here, go there. I'm going to FaceTime with a good friend also in London in a couple of days. Like, there's all sorts of pros to the digital age. But we rarely talk about the cons, and there's a lot. But here's one of, I think, the most dangerous, and that is our attention span, and this is a statistical fact, is dropping with each passing year. I read that in the last three years, it's dropped from 12 and a half seconds to eight seconds. My first thought was, wait, 12 and a half seconds? Was our, that was our high point? Wow, we really, we don't have a lot of wiggle room here. We live in what economists are calling the attention economy. Literally thousands of apps and devices are trying to distract you 24-7. Our new normal is what Microsoft researcher Linda Stone calls continual partial attention. You have people like Tristan Harris, I don't know if you've read his work, a former product philosopher for Google and Silicon Valley Insider who left the industry to start a nonprofit with the sole purpose of arguing for Hippocratic Oath for software designers because he's seen behind the curtain and he's seen that right now everything is designed, it is intentionally engineered by some 20-something in San Francisco for distraction and addiction because that is where the money is.
Pretty much the only place left where we can be alone with our thoughts anymore is in the shower. And once they make an, a waterproof Apple Watch, it's like the beginning of the apocalypse at that point. Like we will never have a good, original, creative thought ever again. Now, why does this matter? Because this new milieu of distraction and addiction is robbing us of the ability, the core, essential human ability to be present to other people, to ourselves, and more than anything, to God. And in doing so, it is robbing us of our soul. Andrew Sullivan, who's a fascinating writer, did a provocative essay for the New York York Times Magazine that he titled, I Used to Be a Human Being. And the essay opens with him checking into a meditation center and dropping his iPhone in a basket to be locked away for what is essentially a digital detox. And there's all sorts of great stuff in his article if you want to give it a read, but I love his closing paragraph. He writes this, there are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. That's kind of, yep, that's great. But then he says this, this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. Let me read that again. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure, the threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget that we have any. Haunting way to end an essay. I can't help but think of Jesus' warning, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world yet lose his what? Soul. And when I say soul, I mean to clarify, I don't just mean that our emotional health is at stake, although absolutely yes. But it's more than just I'm over busy and I'm in a rush all the time and I live with this low-grade anxiety as my new normal and I'm not well and my immune system's shot. Sure, it's all of that, but it's our spiritual life. We feel at distance from the God that we were created for relationship with more than anything. As Ronald Rollheiser put it, and I read this last week, or <laughs> a month ago when we had church, We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. So the question is, is there a practice from the way of Jesus? Is there a time-tested, millennia-old way of living that would set you and me up to thrive right in the middle of all the chaos of modern society? And the answer is yes, absolutely. It's the practice of silence and solitude. To start off, let's have a look at the life of Jesus. Matthew 4, in fact, just back up a line or two to the end of chapter 3. Have a look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So this is like the watershed kind of moment, the beginning to launch Jesus' life in public. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. John said, okay. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, look at this, 4-1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let me read that again. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the story goes on. Now, all I want you to notice tonight is that the first thing Jesus does after his baptism is go straight into the wilderness. Not sign up for a Twitter account or write a book or start a blog or hold a rally or an event or preach to thousands upon thousands of people. First things first, he goes straight to the wilderness. The word for wilderness in Greek is eremos. Can you say that? In the annex, I just love. You didn't say anything, none of you, no love. All right, we'll give you another shot later. How's that? And Aramos has a wide array of meanings. It can be translated the wilderness or the desert, but it's also translated as the deserted place, the desolate place, the solitary place, the quiet place, or my personal favorite, the lonely place. And there are stories in all four Gospels, not just in Matthew, about Jesus' relationship to the Eremos. But this right here is the first one, Matthew 4, and I wanted you to read it with me because I think it's a frame of reference for all the stories that are to come. Take a look one more time at verse 1. Then Jesus was led, we read it twice already, by the Spirit, say the next part with me, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Have you ever read that and thought to yourself, what the heck? That is so bizarre, that is weird, that does not make sense to me. Why would the Spirit do that? I mean, I get that Jesus has to go toe-to-toe with the tempter. If you know the story of the Bible, if you've been reading from Genesis 3 to the right, you get that starts to make sense. But why would the Spirit lead Jesus to the wilderness? And why then to prayer and to fasting and 40 days later then to a kind of head-on clash with the tempter? For years, this story was confusing to me because I read the story this way, that the tempter comes to Jesus in his weakness after 40 days alone with no food, out in the middle of nowhere. Isn't that like the enemy, to come at us when we're alone, when we're tired, at the end of a long, hard week, or at a low point in life? Man, what a jerk. Isn't that like him? but it still did not make sense of why would the Spirit lead Jesus to that place. But then I realized, oh my gosh, I had it backwards. The Eremos isn't the place of weakness, it's the place of strength. The Spirit led Jesus into the Eremos because after 40 days of silence and solitude, Jesus was at the height of his spiritual powers. And then and only then did he have the strength he needed to take on the devil himself face to face. That is why over and over again, all through his life, we see Jesus come back to this place. Turn over to Mark chapter 1, to the right, one book over, Mark chapter 1. If you've read Mark before, you know that chapter 1 is essentially... Um, one long chapter about Jesus' first day on the job as the Messiah, and it's a marathon day. He is up early in the morning and at it all through the afternoon, well past sunset. We read about that in verse 34. Then in verse 35, we read this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to, and in Greek it reads, the Eremos, or in my Bible in English it reads, to a solitary place where he, what? Prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. 
Now, did you see that little pattern there that's fascinating? Jesus goes to the Aramos for 40 days. He comes back for one day on the job, and then he goes back to the Aramos again. So, the Aramos wasn't just a one-time thing. It was woven into the fabric, into the warp and woof of Jesus' everyday life. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. Here's a great, I have so many stories I want to read you tonight, but I just had to pick out a couple. Here's one that I love. Mark chapter 6, look at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Like, hey, they're coming back. Jesus, we did this, we did that. It was amazing. But Jesus, I'm sure he was into it, but wasn't all that impressed by the busyness and the frenetic activity. Then 31, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Pause. You ever feel that way? Like your life is so over busy, your schedule is so jammed, you're like, yes, it's called having a two-year-old, whatever. If you're a parent, you know exactly, or if you're like, yes, I'm in grad school and I'm working four jobs, and you ever feel like you literally don't feel like you have time to eat, much less give yourself over to God and prayer and all, that you are not alone, you're in good company. So they did not even have a chance to eat, and so he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and let's just binge watch Man in the High Castle for a couple of nights. <laughs> like, come with me, there's a great bar down the road, let's just chill, have a beer, hang out and talk. Come with me, I have like a fantastic mattress at this rich person's house for you to just hang out and sleep and relax. No, come with me to, in Greek, the Eremos, in my Bible in English, to a quiet place. Meaning what you really need is not more Netflix, or a distraction, or an escape, or another glass of wine, or a night out in the town. What you really need is time alone with me in a quiet place. So 32, they went away by themselves in a boat to the Eremos, or in my Bible, a solitary place. But then I love it, here's the twist. Many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, can you imagine that feeling? You're like, I just so need to be alone, and then you get there, and everybody else is there. You introverts, anybody out there? All the extroverts are like, what's not fantastic about that? <laughs> like, there's lots that's not fantastic about that, okay? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. I love the realism of this story. Like what they really need is time alone with Jesus in the Aramos. And they go there, but then they're interrupted by forces way outside of their control. That ever happened to you? Your parent, you know exactly what it's like. If you have a busy job or life or your season, yeah, pretty much all of us. You set aside a time to pray or to be alone with yourself and God, but then you get a call from your boss or a text from your mom or you forget that there's a bill due or there's a crisis at work or whatever, and you never have, you never actually get to it. You never have the time. Yeah, that's, that's how life is. But here's all I want you to see. Look down to the end of the story. Look down to 45. Most of you know this story. It's about Jesus feeding a whole lot of people. And then here's the end. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And then we read about a story in the middle of the night right after that. You know, I used to read this story and think, wow, Jesus is so spiritual. 
all-night prayer vigil, like right there in the story, and he is. But when you read the story in context, you realize, I'm not sure that it's Jesus was all about the all-night prayer vigil. I think it's that he was literally so, I don't know if busy is the right word, but his schedule was so full, so packed, the reality of people that are hungry and thirsty for a touch from God, literally he got to the space where all he could do was say, dudes, I need you to go away. Just go away, please. Just He sent them away. If you're an introvert, you're like, I know what Jesus was doing right there. He sent them away. Jesus did it, so can I. And then... And then he literally went up on this mountain. I think, that, I think that praying in the middle of the night on top of a mountain was the only time that Jesus could actually find to get alone with himself and God. And he knows that he needs that time even more than he needs to sleep. And read the Gospels. Like, we all know that Jesus loved to sleep. But he needed that time even more. Turn over to Luke, one more story. Luke chapter five. In the Gospel of Luke alone, there are, I think, nine stories where Jesus goes to the Eremos. I just want to read you one example. Luke chapter 5, have a look at verse 15. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illness. It's a good thing. But, 16, Jesus often withdrew to the Eremos in Greek, to lonely places in English, and prayed. He often withdrew. He frequently withdrew. It was a regular thing in Jesus' life. In fact, in Luke's gospel in particular, you can chart Jesus' life on two axis points. The more busy and popular and in-demand and famous that Jesus became, the more he withdrew to the lonely place to pray. If you're anything like me, then when we get busy at work or in family or in a season of life, usually the first thing to go is silence and solitude. But that's when we need more of it, not less. That is the example set by Jesus. My point is the Eremos, or the lonely place, was a regular part of Jesus' life rhythm. Like read gospel after gospel, story after story, on a regular basis, he would sneak away to the top of a mountain in the middle of the night or to a park outside Jerusalem or a closet in the back of somebody's house just to gather himself to God and to pray. Now, this practice based on the life and teachings of Jesus has come to be called silence and solitude. Here's a working definition of silence and solitude to frame the next couple of weeks of teaching. It's intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. Again, intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. And uh, a word on each. Silence is pretty self-explanatory, but there are two dimensions to silence, external and internal. External silence is when you go somewhere with no noise um, or as little noise as possible. No music in your headphones, no TV in the background, no roommate watching Netflix down the hall. It's when you're out in nature or you're up early in the morning or in the quiet of your room or whatever, and it is quiet. And quiet all by itself, just that alone, is a kind of spiritual discipline. You don't have to do anything, you don't have to read or pray or like fast, just quiet, all by itself, is a kind of spiritual discipline and a balm for emotional healing. 
just a couple of days ago on my Sabbath. Um, it's just, what a great week with all of the snow. And I was sitting in my home office and I was reading and uh, all of a sudden, like just a quiet started to come over the house. I think my children were napping, at the, clearly something, or they were gone or out of the house, something, sleeping or gone. Um, and just a quiet, start, and I just, I, I pushed the pause button and I just sat there in the quiet for a minute, two, five, and I felt my soul just come alive. You ever have that experience? Uh, this morning, I was, on my, uh, I was on a run in Forest Park, and it was just magical and snow everywhere. And I get into the park, and I reach down to grab my phone and my headphones, because normally when I run, that's my podcast time. And uh, I reach down to put it in. I just have this sense like, no, just let it be what it is. Run in the quiet. And I just did it for a minute, five, ten. And oh my gosh, just that sense that easy, that simple, of the quiet, it does something to your soul. There's something about just not talking for a while. As a general rule, the more we talk, the more we sin. (laughs) Would you agree with that? Or in the language of the Hebrew wisdom literature that we call Proverbs, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. If you don't believe me, ask your roommate or your spouse or whatever. I think that we way overvalue talking in the modern world, and I love it. I I love to podcast and TED Talk and listen. I'm a learner, reader. I love just information, information, information. But I think that we way undervalue silence. I get asked on a regular basis to travel somewhere and talk. I've yet to be asked to travel somewhere and just shut up and stand there and listen. (laughs) It's yet to happen. I think that's because silence, as healing as it, and as life-giving as it is, is really hard. What does it say about us that we always have to have music on or TV in the background when we're at home or folding laundry and a show on or NPR on during our morning commute or headphones in on the plane or podcasts going on the run or like nonstop noise? It's, it, it's almost like we're running from something. And that's because there's the external noise and all you have to do to turn that off is put in noise-canceling headphones or go to Forest Park or go to the beach alone for a day. But then there's also an internal noise, the mental clutter, the mind that just won't slow down, the fantasy, the revenge, the hate, the bitterness, the worry, the what if, the squirrel, like (laughs) all of that that we live with. It's not just the sound system or the noise of the city or traffic or my apartment is loud or whatever. There's the internal noise. Silence is when we quiet both. So silence and then solitude. And the two, you know, go together. As I said, silence all by itself is a kind of spiritual discipline, but nine times out of time, the two are kind of lumped together. And I think that's because without silence, there really can be no solitude. Now, solitude, to clarify, is not the same thing as loneliness or isolation. Richard Foster, in Celebration of Discipline, writes, loneliness is inner emptiness, solitude is inner fulfillment. I think it's a great play right there. Wayne Cadero has a great little book on burnout where he writes this. There is a difference, I think a world of difference, between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality they are worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. How good is that? In silence and solitude, we decompress from the noise and traffic and chaos and busyness and activity and nonstop stimulation of modern society. 
In silence and solitude, we slow down long enough to feel all of the emotions that we've been running away from and have been trying to catch up. In silence and solitude, we face the good and the bad and the ugly in our own heart. We face our desire, our hunger, and our thirst for God. And we face our lack of desire for God and our insecurity and our idolatry and our fantasy and everything that lies under the surface of our life, that nasty, weird motivation, the addiction that we've used just to make it through our work week, all of it is exposed but in a safe place with God. In solitude, we hear the voice of God cut through that wall of sound, that cacophony of all the other voices, mom's voice, dad's voice, my boss's voice, that blog's voice, social media's voice, the world's voice, my news app's voice, all the, the enemy's voice, all the other voices. We cut through and start to realize this is true and this is a lie. And we get the right perspective on our life with God. In silence and solitude, we come to a new place of freedom, our successes and our failures slowly start to lose their power over us, as does the tyranny of the approval or disapproval of other people. In silence and solitude, we come home to ourselves and above all, to God. Now, when we're not getting enough silence and solitude, we feel distant from God. Um, we just feel like there's this space, this cosmic kind of distance between you and God, at least at an emotional or a spiritual level. We end up living off somebody else's spirituality through a podcast or a book or a devotional or an Instagram feed. But not only that, we feel distant from ourselves. We're not even self-aware, much less self-actualized. We lose sight of our identity, who we are in God, and our calling from God into the world. We lose the right perspective on life. Our priorities get all out of whack. We get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. We feel like we're running like a chicken with our head cut off all the time, go, 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 do all this stuff, but yet we're never really getting around to what really matters. We get sucked into escapism, not engagement, because we run out of energy to do what's actually life-giving, things like prayer and community, and instead we turn to Netflix or the internet or social media or food or alcohol or porn or your drug of choice because we're too tired to actually do what is right and life-giving. We become easy prey for the tempter. We become emotionally unhealthy and we start to live a reactionary life. Just a small thing, that comment from a coworker or a weird thing from your husband or your wife or your roommate or a little criticism or a post or whatever is a trigger and we lose our temper, we bark at our children, we get defensive, we sulk, we get all upset, we get anxious, whatever it is. These are the signs and symptoms of a life without silence and solitude. We need, and I repeat that language, I mean every sense of it, we need to recapture this practice or face spiritual oblivion. Most of the great teachers of the way, down through two millennia now of church history, would all say, and you're welcome to disagree, but there's a lot of evidence there, a lot of men and women who would say that silence and solitude is the most important of all the spiritual disciplines. All of them matter, and all of them matter more or less based on your personality, and all of that is true, but really this one most of the time is at the top of the list. Henry Nouwen, if you've ever read his stuff, just that master apprentice of Jesus, he writes this, Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. 
We do not take spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to Him. I love just, he's so blunt and straight up and he does not beat around the bush. It doesn't matter, a lot of people are well-meaning, really wanna follow Jesus, wanna be transformed in apprenticeship to Jesus, and that's great. But if you don't work silence and solitude into your practice of discipleship to Jesus, it will never happen. Frankly, you just, you don't actually take spiritual life seriously. That's not to slam you at all, it's just to call out what is true if you don't set some time aside to be with God and listen to Him. I mean, that makes sense. Like, if you wanna have a relationship with anybody, you have to have time alone together. What would happen to your marriage if you were never alone together, ever? Always go, go, go around other people, never any time, one-on-one, to talk, connect, just rest together, make love, be one. You would never make it. Same is true for a relationship with a best friend or a family member or anything. Your relationship to God and to yourself is the same. You have to carve out time to be alone. Henry Nouwen once asked Mother Teresa for spiritual direction, which is, man, something that I'm really sad. I think the Protestant tradition doesn't have a place for, and that's something I would love to get back to. But he asked her for, mother, for spiritual direction, and she said this, spend one hour each day in adoration of your Lord and never do anything you know is wrong. Follow this and you'll be fine. <laughs> How great is that? Like, just take an hour a day alone with God and don't do anything that you know is wrong. That, that's Mother Teresa, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> to Henry Nowen, okay? That's like, that's a big deal, okay? And um, I, I just could not agree more. We need to recapture this practice. And this is our moment. I mean, the whole world is talking about this in a sense right now. You can't go two feet at Powell's or, you know, one click onto the podcast section of iTunes and not hear about mindfulness. Mindfulness, 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 mindfulness. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm into it. But mindfulness is essentially silence and solitude for a secular age. Usually, if you read the literature, it's linked to Buddhism, but if my therapist were here, who's a PhD, uber smart dude, he would say it's way more Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount than it is Buddha and Zen, but psychologists can't say that because we live in a post-Christian society that is in reaction against Christianity, so the credit goes to Zen. But either way, followers of Jesus have been doing this for millennia up until about 50 years ago, or at least until 2007. And I think this is our moment to lead even our society in a whole new, better, ancient, better way to be human. Again, Andrew Sullivan in that article writes this, modernity slowly weakens spirituality by design and accident in favor of commerce. It downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. So, this week, we start the practice of silence and solitude. We do it alone, but at the same time we do it together as a community. A few practical things before we get into it. First, I would say this, and this is kind of pretty basic stuff. 
One is know your personality, season, and stage. This practice, I think more than any other, will be shaped by your personality, in particular where you fall on the kind of introvert to extrovert spectrum. If you're an introvert, you'll need a ton of time alone. If you're an extrovert, not so much, but you still need time alone. Um, it will be shaped by your season of life. Are you in grad school? Are you working a couple of jobs? Do you have little children um, or a baby or whatever? But no matter what season of life you're in, you still need time alone. It will be shaped by your stage of discipleship. There are stages um, in our journey with Jesus where we just need a ton of silence and solitude. We're working through an issue from our family of origin or our character or an addiction or a sin or whatever. And then there are other seasons when really we're in a healthy, good place and we're out and it's a season of mission and ministry and that's great, but you still need time alone. My point is that no matter your personality, no matter your season of life, no matter your stage of discipleship, we all need this. But listen, please hear me. Don't feel pressure, none at all, to fit into a stereotype or check a box or I need to be like Henry Nouwen. He was single and an introvert, okay? It's a totally different thing. I'm a 32-year-old mom with, like, it's a whole other world. Don't feel pressure to fit into any specific kind of stereotype. There's no timesheet, like nobody's checking, except for God, but nobody else <laughs> is checking at the end of the week. And I know because I spend time with you and I love you guys so much, and I know that this Practice in particular is, is, I think, the most important of them all, yet is so radical and countercultural and hard and difficult that a lot of people just, just don't even give it a shot. I know some of you are sitting here right now and you're thinking, that sounds great but, for you, but not, I can't do this. I'm too busy, I'm working too much, I'm in school, I have a child, I'm an extrovert, I don't really know how to pray, I'm not really good at that kind of stuff. And I just want to disagree and all love, I want to disagree with you. You can do this. Just start small. Start where you're at, not where I'm at or where somebody you know or look up to is at. Start where you're at. If that's 10 minutes every other day, fantastic. Like, just start somewhere. Give yourself a ton of grace and move forward with Jesus. On that note, secondly, is this idea of practice but not performance. We really want to see a culture grow up in the coming months at Bridgetown Church of practice, not performance. Really make sure in the coming week as you get together with your community and you circle up and talk through the practice, you come at it with the right heart posture. You can come at this, I can come at this with a performance-based legalistic attitude, like I need to do this, I need to do that. How long did he say? Okay, I need, how long are you doing it? Okay, I need to do it longer. Whatever. Trying to impress people in your community. Oh, how did you do this week? Oh, you didn't do an hour a day? Didn't you see the Mother Teresa quote? Seriously? Oh, you didn't. Oh, wow. Just 10 minutes, three times. Wow, that's like nothing. I spent more time brushing my teeth than <laughs> you or whatever. Like trying to impress other people or God forbid trying to impress God, which by the way, it's just a losing game. Like you just, I, I don't think, unless if you're Moses, I don't think you stand a chance at impressing God. Or we can come at it with a practice-based experimental attitude. I don't know what this is going to be like. Maybe I'll love it. Maybe I'll hate it. Maybe I'll be a natural. Maybe I'll be really bad at it. Maybe it will be easy for me. Maybe it will be hard for me. Maybe I'll get hours in. Maybe I'll get just a little time here, a little time there. 
It's all about heart posture. And remember, we're doing this in community, and the odds are that in your community, um, people are across the spectrum in apprenticeship to Jesus. You have some um, that are, if your community is anything like mine, you have some that are brand new in apprenticeship to Jesus and don't really even know how to pray or read the Bible. And it's, it's one thing to carve out 30 minutes, you know, to like be alone with God, but then it's like, what do I do when I get here? <laughs> and we'll talk about that later. Um, and then other people, I think of Richard and Penny over here in my community, you've been, I don't know how old you are. I keep wanting to ask you, but I feel embarrassed to ask you. But my guess is you've been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. And there's everybody in that kind of mix somewhere in between. And listen, it is your responsibility to create an environment in your community where everybody feels safe. Where somebody who's been following Jesus for three days, or somebody that's not even following Jesus yet, that is in Alpha and thinking about it, and somebody that's been following Jesus for a very long time, everybody feels safe. We're an introvert and an extrovert, a mom and a single person where everybody feels safe. People for whom it's easy, people for whom it is, oh my gosh, this is hard, where everybody feels safe. A culture of practice where we really believe that the way of Jesus is a way of life, not just a set of ideas, not just a church event. It's a way of being human in community, but a, a culture of practice and not performance. Finally, I would just say think short and long, meaning it's helpful for me at least to think about silence and solitude in two categories, short times, short times of silence and solitude on a regular basis, ideally every day, or if you're up for it, even a few times through your day, maybe an hour or something in the morning, a little 10 minute here or there in the afternoon or before you go to bed. If not that, then just look for opportunities all through your day, just a minute here, five minutes there to be present to yourself and to God making coffee when you first wake up in the morning, which we all know is a spiritual discipline. <laughs> Your walk down the street to a bus stop before work, a brief wait in an elevator. Just recently, I, I read this in a Dallas Willard book and I started doing it. Um, when I wake up in the morning, before I get out of bed, I just say Psalm 23 really fast and something like, good morning, Father, I commit this day to you. It takes, I don't know, 30 seconds tops but just that one little moment to just frame everything that comes out of that place has really done something to my soul. So look for those little moments, those little opportunities to be present with yourself and God. And then long times of silence and solitude, a few hours on your Sabbath or a day retreat if you're up for it, or maybe once a year I do a couple of nights away and it's, it's really hard and really good for my soul. In closing, um, I just started reading a couple of days ago that uh, bestseller, Thank You for Being Late, which is a great title, by Thomas Friedman. Subtitle is An Optimist Guide to Thriving in an Age of Acceleration. And it's all about this conversation that we're in right now and just the speed of the modern world. And he has this great quote in his intro from a CEO named Dove Seedman who says this, when you press, it's a little cheesy, but I think it's good. When you press the pause button on a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, it starts. It starts to reflect, to rethink, and to reimagine. For some of you, the integration of this practice into your apprenticeship to Jesus, which a ton of you are already doing and a ton of you aren't, for some of you, it will be the start of a whole new season of healing and freedom. You know, I grew up in a church tradition um, where we used to use the language of a morning quiet time. Anybody remember that? from the 90s, or yeah, a couple of you like grew up in that same kind of church tradition. 
And I love that language. I think that's right out of the New Testament. But you know, I've started to notice that I rarely, if ever, hear people talk about that anymore. And when I do, in fact, when I hear people talk about the spiritual disciplines in general, nine times out of 10, it's in a negative light, not in a positive light, in a kind of sarcastic, off to the side, well, that's my legalistic, you know, religious church upbringing, like my morning quiet time with God. Your morning quiet time with God. With God? Like, yeah, yeah. And I cringe, like it just does violence to my soul. Because I, I grew up in this, and I, I grew up in a family that was following Jesus. I remember one of my vivid childhood memories is that 365 days a year, I would wake up, and my mom was right there in her chair, no matter how early I got up, with her cup of coffee and her Bible just staring off into space. And I thought it was weird at first. <laughs> and then it shaped me. And then I grew up into that practice, into that way of life. And now I'm watching the same thing happen to my children, third generation now following Jesus. And I just want to say in closing, please don't write me off. I know that I'm an introvert. I know that I'm a biosaurus because I love to be alone and like go walking out in the woods and read and pray and ponder and stare off into space. I know that a lot of you are not wired that way. You want to go have like a mojito with your girlfriend, okay? Just my wife, that's all I'm thinking about right now. <laughs> I get that. I'm friends with the time my wife, I'm, like, I've, so I'm around people. I love that. It's a beautiful aspect of how God's wired you. But don't write me off, please. Regardless of your personality, wherever you're at, this might be really hard for you. It might not. I don't know. But either way, it's worth it. The best things in life usually are. This is a place, the Eremos, where Jesus and countless numbers of his apprentices down through human history, myself included, have found life with God. And this is a place where you can find life with God too. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.